It is Tuesday, April 6th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schauf, and I've got two special guests with me today. One is the fantasy guy at thefootballgirl.com and a new contributor to Football Guys. He's basically the fantasy voice bridging the genders. Pat Fitzmaurice, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Also with us is the creator of the Bulletproof Prospect Process, host of the Bulletproof Fantasy Football Podcast, Drew Osinchuk. Thank you for joining me as well. Yeah, no worries. I'm excited to dive into this. It should be fun. Yeah, Drew's up in Saskatchewan, so we have an international show for everybody today. And more importantly, I do think it should be a fun show. We're, we're in the thick of NFL draft season right now. We're all excited about the prospects. We're all planting flags with our guys for varying reasons. But some of those guys are going to fail. We all know that, even though we try to ignore it as we go in. Today, though, we're not ignoring it. We are going to be reliving some of those past failures on this show with a particular nod toward those players the NFL tried to warn us about by drafting them much later than we thought they were going to. Drew, I know that I think I caused you a little bit of anguish with this. I saw you tweeting the other night about the heartache. I hope you didn't hurt too much as you were looking back for samples here. No, no, no. It was fine. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, even though you're a Packers fan, as we can tell by your hat on the stream, you're also a Chicago guy. It's one of my favorite cities. But we're going to start this process with QBs. So because you would do live in the Chicago area, because those Bears have fared so poorly at picking QBs for so long, I figured I'd give you the opportunity here to select the first quarterback for our show. Who's your favorite all-bust-level QB? Oh, nice. And I didn't even go with the Chicago Bears. Would have had some golden opportunities here, but I did not go local with this. Uh, So I went for Johnny Manziel, a guy who I kind of took the bait on when he came out. He comes out of the Kevin Sumlin's air raid offense at Texas A&M and got on the map, put himself on the map with that upset of Alabama in Tuscaloosa in 2012. All of a sudden, Johnny football is like a thing nationally. You know, in hindsight, maybe we should have gone back and seen that like some of his better games in 2012, that great redshirt freshman year he had were against like Sam Houston State and uh, Louisiana Tech and SMU. So not, you know, quite top notch SEC competitors. But anyway, I mean, he runs for 1400 yards that year. And I think 21 touchdowns. So, you know, you're all excited about the mobility has an even better passing season as a redshirt sophomore and then comes out. Browns draft him, what, I think number 22 overall? I figured we were going to get the mobility and, you know, if he could just be a better passer than Tim Tebow, which I was pretty certain he was based on what he did in college. And because most people are. Yeah, like he didn't even necessarily need to be an above average NFL passer, just be in the neighborhood of average. And he was going to be a fantasy asset because of the the running, the Konami code thing, mm-hmm. hat tip Rich Rebar. From the beginning, he just looked totally overmatched. He looked tiny. I mean, I know he, he was, what, six feet, 210 pounds, but he, he didn't look that big when he was playing. Seemed like every recollection I have of him was him just running for his life uh, <laughs> out of the pocket and just... You know, it turned out, uh, what, two seasons, 57% passer, 6.5 YPA, seven TDs, seven interceptions. Just never saw any glimmer of hope that he was going to be a a legitimate NFL quarterback. So, um, yeah, I took the bait on Johnny Football and uh, hurt me in a few (laughs) leagues back then. Yeah, I think many of us did. And maybe the takeaway is that if you look at the whole group, we should be wary of those quarterbacks that go – in that kind of late first round range, you know, like mid teens into the twenties. Yeah. And in in hindsight, like maybe if Johnny right from the get go, there were questions about his commitment and his work ethic. Like maybe if, if Johnny was just this, you know, dogged competitor, you know, he could have cobbled together a decent career, but I think we saw that even if he had maxed things out, he was not going to be a a long-term NFL starter. Hmm. Drew, who do you have at quarterback? I went with a guy that, uh, you know, there, there was some mock drafts that had him going in the first round in his draft year, and then he ended up falling to the third round of the Pittsburgh Steelers. His name is Mason Rudolph. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we didn't really overvalue him in his rookie year, but it, when Ben got hurt, 
then we like took him to the moon. I saw him getting traded for like first round dynasty picks, which was really wild. More often than not, it was second round, but still for a guy that's drafted in the third round that really like the NFL told us he isn't that good. <laughs> uh, if we see like a long-term starter come out of the, the latter rounds, it's usually second rounders where like the top of the second round where you get like Derek Carr and Andy Dalton and guys like that, where, you know, the, we didn't have teams passing on them twice, <laughs> if that makes sense. And then Mason Rudolph, every team passed on him twice and the Steelers <laughs> took him. There was all kinds of crazy narratives about, uh, you know, him and James Washington and how good they were going to be because they were so good together in college and, and it just never materialized. And I, I did have a few Mason Rudolph shares sitting on my bench that I, I foolishly hung on to, even though he wasn't even scoring fantasy points in the year that he did get to start. I should have been should have been punting him. The NFL told us otherwise, and I didn't listen. And uh, that was that was a mistake. I think that opportunity is a, a cruel mistress. It makes us see things that aren't really there with all sorts of prospects. For sure. It's funny that you addressed the uh, second round guys. We've certainly had some hits there. Uh, Drew Brees is one of them. I want to take us all the way back to that draft that did include Drew Brees because just after him were Quincy Carter going in the same round to Dallas and Marcus Tuiasosopo going oh. to the Raiders with the 59th overall pick. And honestly, I don't remember exactly how fantasy players were rating those guys at the time. We're talking about back in 2001 and it was the Michael Vick draft. So most of us weren't paying attention to any quarterback, not named Michael Vick at that point, but those guys looked like dual threat types in college who should be able to give us production in the NFL. Quincy Carter, of course, landed on that Dallas team that suddenly had a needed quarterback. He endured three rough years in Dallas, had a 2004 swan song with the Jets. And by swan song, I, I mean that in the loosest of terms. Marcus Tuiasosopo, second round pick of the Raiders, he landed on a team that had Rich Gannon starting and heading toward his age 36 season and the first season that Tuiasosopo was there. Not only did Gannon hang on to that job for several more years, a 33-year-old Rick Meyer joined the team in 2003, two years after Marcus Tuiasosopo was drafted, started eight games there. That wound up being six more games than Marcus Tuiasosopo would start for his career. And really, as I was looking back through the quarterbacks, I just wanted an excuse to have to pronounce Tuiasosopo a bunch of times today. <laughs> That's a nice call. That's a really nice call. Any other quarterbacks that you found in your research there, Pat? Well, since you were going way back, I mean, that 1999 draft, was just such a graveyard. You and I, Matt, backstage before the show, we're talking about my Pro Football Weekly days back in the late 90s. And, and that covered that 99 draft where Tim Couch went number one overall. Donovan McNabb, home run for the Eagles with number two. But then Akili Smith to the, the Bengals at number three. And then I think number 12, one of those Bears quarterbacks, Cade McNown, <laughs> who uh, you know had looked fantastic that January 1st against my Wisconsin Badgers in a bowl game, just this great bowl game that, you know, Wisconsin pulled out, but just a total shootout. And then Cade comes to Chicago and just fell on his face completely. And I, maybe we should mention Paxton Lynch too. <laughs> in uh, 2016, I guess I was, the only reason I was off him was because I bet Memphis in the uh, Birmingham bowl against Alabama <laughs> that year or not, not Alabama, Auburn. Uh, I thought they were a good play, and Lynch went in that game uh, 16 for 37 for 106 <laughs> yards. So, yeah, that kind of put me off him a little bit, but I know a lot of people liked him, like the arm strength and the, the big frame, and, uh, you know, that didn't work out too well. Yeah, I mean, big arm can run. How can you go wrong there? He was one of those later first-round quarterbacks, though, too. As an Eagles fan, I definitely will never forget the 1999 draft. I got to be honest, at the time, I was – not, I didn't really like Syracuse, so that probably made me a little biased toward Donovan McNabb. I was hoping that the Eagles would somehow get Tim Couch or would trade back and take Dante Culpepper, who went right after Cade McNabb in that draft. So Fortunately, I was disappointed to get McNabb because he was obviously the lottery ticket out of that group. But yeah, that's, a, that's always a fun class to remember. Didn't that get mainly booed by Eagles fans because they wanted Ricky Williams? Oh, yeah. That who they wanted in that draft. <laughs> they were so angry. I was I was not in the crowd that wanted Ricky Williams. I wanted a quarterback, and I liked Deuce Staley. I thought we were set there. But, yeah, I will not lie and say that McNabb was the guy I was hoping for. <laughs> Drew, any other quarterbacks on your list? The one that I feel like I missed, just completely missed on, is Marcus Mariota. The NFL didn't tell us that he wasn't good, but, oh, my goodness, he's probably the best analytical quarterback 
we've maybe ever seen. Like he, there was no checkbox that he didn't check. And he, you know, flaming out in what three years, four years was was not what I was hoping for, that's for sure. He didn't get off to a strong start in the NFL and then it all just fell apart. We'll see if he can recoup some production here in the second half of his career. If if he can ever get a starter's job again, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, there was there was nothing that looked like he was not gonna be a star in my eyes, and he is definitely not one of those. <laughs> And of course, he got the one game last year and he balled out in that game. And now people are all excited about him again. Yeah. It's pretty crazy when we have a year like that where the question at the start of the draft is Winston or Mariota. And the answer ends up being neither for the teams (laughs) that selected them. Totally. Seems to be the case the the last few years, though. Like, even uh, that was what, 2015, I think, 2016, we had Goff and Wentz who were both gone. 17, pretty much all of them are, are gone at this point. Except for uh, Baker and, oh, I guess not all of them. Just Rosen and Darnold are gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Josh Allen ended up panning out. We all thought that was stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the NFL one of these years will learn that you don't force quarterbacks up to the top of the board if they don't belong there. But they, they probably won't because it's that important. Yeah. So let's move over to tight end, which honestly I think is probably going to be the most boring position. Maybe that didn't prove true for everybody else. But uh, I, I was going through. I had fun doing the other positions. And I got the tight end last, and I was like, oh, man. It's getting a little tough to stay awake and not just just because it's late. So, Pat, what did you come up with among tight ends? All right. I don't know if this is necessarily the best poll uh, according to the spirit of the the ground rules you laid down, Matt, because this guy isn't necessarily a guy who the NFL told us he couldn't play. Austin Safarian Jenkins (laughs) mainly picked him just because so many people kept a candle lit in the window for ASJ for so long, hoping that that combination of, you know, 6'6", 262 pounds, 84th percentile speed score, 88th percentile agility score, 92nd percentile catch radius, started his freshman season at age 18, 41 catches for 538 yards and six touchdowns for Washington, uh, an 852-yard seven TD season as a sophomore just seemed like this guy was, you know, tailor-made to be a big time producer in the NFL. You know, in fairness, I think the most he ever played in a season was 13 games due to injuries, had a DUI, substance issues, uh, there were suspensions. So I think the play that pretty much summarizes ASJ was that game where he was with the Jets and uh, was about to score against the Patriots in 2017 and fumbles it through the end zone at, you know, the the one yard line inside the one yard line, you know, his career in a nutshell. But um, yeah, man, I, so many people were waiting, waiting, waiting for that guy to fire and it just never happened. I think fumbling it through the end zone should be like the title of his biography one day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are no rules here. The only rule is that we're trying to cause emotional pain to anybody watching or listening. And then, you know, it's, it's basically a therapy session for guys that we all missed on going back. Drew, do you have anybody at tight end? Yeah, the guy that I picked that I think the NFL told us probably isn't that good. Uh, he was like the Debbie tight end one coming into his rookie year. And it, Albert O from Denver falling to like round four was was not something that I expected. I never would have thought that he would be a round four tight end looking at what he had done in the first couple of years of his college career. And then seeing what he did at the Combine, like the guy's a freak and he nobody seemed to want him. It, it, like it was it was shocking to me. I mean, we don't know what he's going to be yet because it was only what last year. But, you know, last year was a pretty weak tight end class and he couldn't even find his way into day two. So that. Tells us quite a lot about his career prospects, in my opinion, at this point. So I think we were pretty wrong on him coming into the draft. Uh, the NFL told us he wasn't that good, and and we'll see. The other guy that I should probably mention that I missed on that I thought was really good, and the NFL didn't tell us otherwise, was David Njoku. Again, like a perfect prospect, basically, that just never fired. And he did all right. Like his first year was fine. His second year, I think he was tight end eight or something. So like he, he was usable in fantasy. And then he just, you know, got hurt his third year and they just gave up on him just like that. Game over. We're bringing in Austin Hooper. Are you done with David Njoku now, though? Or do you think there's still hope for him at all? Oh, there's still hope for David. I'll, I'll, I'll roster him until he's out of the league at this point. There you go. He's still only 24, so there's time. Absolutely. I got Bucky Hodges from 2017. Oh. And I don't remember the fantasy crowd being overly excited about him, but there were definitely some Bucky Hodges fans because of the athleticism. He was a tight end from Virginia tech 
who, you know, very fast, tested very well athletically. Then he was picked in round six. So there's still some folks like, I'll take him as a tight end three because there's not that much in that range. But uh, I think the NFL told us that Bucky Hodges was an athlete who wasn't very good at football at that point, and that has bared out so far. Another one that I've got to mention, though, in this category is kind of breaking my rule that I set up to start the show because the NFL told us that he was pretty good. Kobe Fleener in 2012. Mm. I think that Kobe Fleener is similar in Bucky Hodges in that he's a reminder both to us as fantasy players and the NFL that maybe we shouldn't overrate those testing numbers at tight end because Kobe Fleener tested wonderfully, but we should have judged him, I think, a little bit more harshly for his big stupid grin, and then maybe we wouldn't have been so stuck with him in fantasy leagues. Yeah, they didn't test the softness of Kobe's hands at the combine, unfortunately. <laughs> that would have been a test where he would not have uh, – that would have been like third percentile score. There. I could just imagine them accepting applications to be the soft hands tester at the combine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move away from tight ends, Pat, and start us off at running back with somebody that hurts our hearts. All right, so uh, back in 2014, this was maybe one of the first years where we got a taste of the NFL starting to fade running backs in the draft a little bit. And the first running back taken that year, uh, 54th overall, so like, you know, mid to late second round, Bishop Sankey to the Titans. You know, again, like the the measurables with, with him, I think he had like a 99th percentile agility score, did well in, you know, speed, burst, everything productive in his last year at, at Washington, you know, over 1800 yards, 21 rushing touchdowns, his junior year, that was his last comes into the league, you know, just kind of looked small, you know, the burst and speed didn't seem to show up in games, you know, starts nine games as a rookie in 2014, 569 yards, two touchdowns, 3.7 yards per carry. Didn't really give us any reason to be excited. Comes in in 2015, makes three starts, but he's relegated to the bench pretty quickly. Under 200 rushing yards, and that was it. Out of the league after two years. You know, your your first running back selected in 2014, and man, did he flame out quickly. Yeah, no kidding. Is there anything that you take away from the Bishop Sankey saga that changes anything for you going forward, either on the prospect front or running back? It seemed like that was just a real lackluster class. Mm-hmm. You know, normally I I think, especially in redraft, I generally think running backs are a pretty good investment because people are always a little hesitant just because they haven't proven it yet. That was sort of one year where I just could not get on board with any of those guys and really like didn't have many rookie running backs in redraft. And if I did, they were just like the late round guys throwing a darts, you know, with the final pick or two of my... I don't know if there's anything I took away. I I do know that a lot of people sort of fell for the athleticism with Sankey. Mm -hmm. They were pleased with the combine numbers and were willing to invest in him. So Mm -hmm. didn't work out. Yeah. Maybe it's a warning to not treat the top running back in every class the same as the top running back from another class. I mean, if the NFL says we're not touching any of these guys until day two, it's like, all right, maybe we should be a little bit more apprehensive of them. Drew, who's the running back that's hurting your heart the most? Oh, the running back that's hurting my heart the most. Uh, the one that's hurting my heart the most personally is Rashad Penny, who <laughs> I, I thought he was just going to be great. Like he tested off the charts. He was super productive his final year. And I, I made the excuse, and I, I remember this. Like I actually said this out loud to people, and I believe on Twitter and in articles, <laughs> is that it's okay that he didn't produce when he was younger, even at that school, because he was behind a record-setting college running back because i can't even remember the guy's name now but he he he, i think he's the all-time leader in rushing yards in college football or somewhere thereabouts it's like it's okay that he didn't produce you don't take off record setters and put in the backup was that donald pumphrey was that where he was yeah i think that's who it was yeah and obviously he probably just wasn't all that good and that's why donald pumphrey played over him until his final year and uh, i mean hindsight's 2020 but Uh Kind of missed that one pretty bad, uh, and, and the NFL didn't really tell us he was bad. They picked him in the first round, so it wasn't wasn't the NFL signaling us that he wasn't very good. It, it was just you know a a massive error on my part. I think was making the excuse for Rashad Penny when I I never make excuses for players for not producing when they're younger. It's so much easier to make those excuses though when the NFL is like, no, you're right. You should make those excuses because yeah. we agree totally. The running back that gets me the most 
is from 2016. And Kenneth Dixon is always going to be a personal reminder for taking note of where the NFL picks a guy, no matter how I felt about him going in. I loved the receiving upside on Kenneth Dixon. Not only did he have big receiving numbers, but he basically put up wide receiver tape at running back in college at Louisiana Tech. I talked myself into preferring Kenneth Dixon over Derrick Henry in that class. And then he landed an opportunity in Baltimore. The 2015 Ravens, the year before he was drafted, had 10-game Justin Forsett as the leading rusher. But even with that in mind, they didn't pick Dixon until round four. He was the sixth running back off the board in a week class. He went behind Tyler Irvin. And yet still, I'm like, no, Kenneth Dixon's got opportunity. He's going to be awesome. He's not. (laughs) He has yet to be awesome. (laughs) I don't know what he would be if he was healthy, but he's definitely somewhere short of awesome. So I, I got Kenneth Dixon way wrong that year. He certainly stays a reminder player for me. At least he was also in this class of other reminder types like Paul Perkins and Jonathan Williams. Yeah, it seems like we fall for the running backs. Generally, people seem to like the running backs who play behind bad offensive lines and produce nonetheless in college. I remember everyone talked about how bad Dixon's line was at Louisiana Tech. You know, it seemed that that was a big selling point for Cam Akers last year about how productive he was mm-hmm. behind the bad line at Florida State. Now it looks like Cam Akers is going to be a hit, most likely. So, you know, maybe that's not something we should necessarily avoid in the future. But it does seem like that makes people extra partial to these guys who were productive in spite of bad blocking. And I mean, we'll see about Cam Akers. We're all kind of assuming that he's going to hit at this point after a nice finish this season, but it's really just a couple of really good right. games. I'm very curious to see what the next step is for Cam Akers. Drew, you have anybody else on your running back board? One that uh, comes to mind that wasn't really one of my guys, but like Keyshawn Vaughn last year, him skyrocketing to the end of the first round of Dynasty rookie drafts after. You know, I think he was like a late third round pick with not a very impressive profile, in my opinion. And, and then just like completely being absolutely nothing <laughs> in his rookie year was was kind of amusing to me. You know, that's kind of a case of you see the opportunity. It's oh, it's Ronald Jones who hasn't actually done really anything yet and, and no one else. So Keyshawn Vaughn could be it. And and Keyshawn Vaughn did have a couple nice data points. Like he was pretty fast. And he's one of the guys you were just mentioning, like played behind a bad offensive line and we propped him up because he played behind a bad offensive line and so on and so forth. I guess the NFL kind of told us he wasn't that good because they didn't take him till the end of round three, but at least they did take him on round three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the we guys were all really... waiting to see who the Bucks were going to take at running back, which only pushed yeah. him up further. Exactly. <laughs> Pat, do you have any other running backs? Back? Yeah, so uh, I got to turn to my alma mater here and uh, Ron Dane, class of 2000. Sorry, Giants fans. 11th (laughs) overall that year, eight picks ahead of Sean Alexander. Uh, I'm sure that won't hurt you too much, Matt, as an Eagles fan to uh, (laughs) think back of that. That puts a smile on your face, I see, with good reason. Um, Yeah, so Dane did manage to stick around for seven seasons. Never had more than 773 yards rushing in any of those seasons. Not much of a contributor in the passing game. You know, and as someone who probably watched every college game Dane played, including more than a dozen in person, I mean, he was all that in college. Like, not a straight-line speed guy, but great footwork for this big dude. Great at setting up tacklers. So, like, very rarely got hit square. And then if you're not hitting this 250, 260 pound dude squarely, good luck bringing him down. But, you know, he he did play behind some excellent offensive lines through the entirety of his career. Did not see the sort of holes he got at Wisconsin once he went to the NFL. And, uh, you know, the, the lack of speed was a big, big problem. Really showed up at the next level. So, you know, he, he did crank out a couple like 750-yard type seasons. But, yeah, I mean, a, a big whiff for the Giants, a big whiff for anyone who took him in fantasy those first couple mm-hmm. of years. Oh, yeah, big letdown all around. On the other side of the speed question, I mean, I certainly look at speed score every year, but I've got a few guys as examples of not overrating speed score. Ben Tate back in 2010 out of Auburn. He was a big winner on the speed score front. I think he led that class in speed score. Then he went fifth among running backs in that class, averaged just 4.9 yards per carry for his career at Auburn though. So that should have been kind of a 
I think a warning flag for a, a big fast back in college, but uh, you know, didn't really work out. I think we all overrated him for a while. Christian Michael in Seattle at the end of round two in 2013, they took him with a comp pick. So who knows, maybe they just considered him a luxury, but every time Christian Michael's name comes up still, I think people are like, Oh, I'm gonna, maybe this will be his opportunity. I think I should stash him in my dynasty league just in case. And then Bernard Pierce, Christian Michael's the biggest name, but Bernard Pierce to Baltimore in 2012 is the same kind of thing. I think he was from temple opportunity was there. He was a speed score winner. He didn't seize the opportunity, never went anywhere for fantasy owners. Yeah, we got to mention Trent Richardson, right? Third <laughs> overall pick. Like a promising enough first year. You look back on the signs in that, well, he was kind of a one-year wonder at Alabama, you know, late bloomer in, in college. But man, I mean, it just seemed like he had the the versatile skill sets, the pass catching ability, and then the pretty decent first year. You know, it seemed like it was the beginning of a nice career, and then it all just totally came apart at the seams. Yeah, that was a shocking downfall. I mean, really. It really was. It really I wonder, was. like, him getting traded after his rookie year is so bizarre. So, like, what did Cleveland see that nobody, that everyone else didn't have privy to? You know, like, was he just, like, a, didn't do anything at practice? Like, didn't, didn't show up to the film study? Like, what did they know to get rid of him that quickly? Because his rookie year wasn't that bad. I think he had a thousand yards or something. Yeah. I mean, he had a pretty good rookie year. They still, they still got a first round pick for him. So yeah. I, I think at the time, I don't remember reading anything about Cleveland specifically disliking him at the time. I, I remember thinking they were getting value. Um, I don't, I don't even remember exactly which year it was to think of what they were trying to get in the draft. But Pat, that. maybe you remember any other details of why they unloaded him. Yeah, I don't remember the the trade. I remember thinking it was, you know, weird. Like some people were starting to come around to the idea of the the value fade with running backs. Um, like some GMs got it and some didn't. And I thought it was kind of weird at the time that the Browns were sort of ahead of the curve on that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I wish I could remember what that trade entailed. But I think it was just him for a first round pick. Like it wasn't anything. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Anything special. It was, it was just weird. Like they picked him third overall and then he had a thousand yards and they're like, okay, get out of here. We'll take it at random first. It was just a weird trade. So it was like, there, there must've been something behind the scenes that they could tell that he, he just wasn't long for the league and they, they got out fast. Probably they watched him trying to go into the cafeteria team headquarters and he would like miss the door a couple times before he finally found his way through. <laughs> I must be running it. into the wall. Wide receiver. We might as well call this the honorary Hakeem Butler seat, right? Because that's the the example that everybody's going to know. Is two years ago, even if you didn't love Hakeem Butler, you were like, yeah, Hakeem Butler looks all right. I like these other guys more. I was a big Hakeem Butler fan. And then he quickly became my wide receiver version of Kenneth Dixon because the NFL took him in the sixth round. And I mean, if you're expecting a guy to go late in the first and the NFL says, no, nah, he's a sixth round, I, you should lose his number. <laughs> For, like there's lots of guys on, on the wide receiver side that I, that are kind of funny that, you know, in, in Debbie leagues, like we were all propping up and, and, and in pre-draft, we were like, oh, no, this guy, he's going to be great. He's going to get, you know, day two capital and it's going to be fantastic. One of the guys that really comes to mind for me is uh, Equinemius St. Brown, which his brother's in this class. And like he was a Debbie darling for years. And then, you know, it just wasn't, in my opinion, he wasn't a great prospect. And then he fell to day three and I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, he really isn't a good prospect then. But, you know, it's funny how how we had been, you know, propping him up for years as Debbie players saying he's the next thing. And then to just see the, the rug pulled out from under him. And like, it wasn't even like, Green Bay was like, ooh, I can't wait to get Equinemius St. Brown in the third round or in the on day three. They're like, now we're gonna take these other two guys first. Then oh, he's still there. Yeah, okay, I guess we'll take him. Like it was it was really weird. I wonder if he would have been as popular as a prospect if his name were Eric St. Brown. Probably not. <laughs> he's, he's definitely way up there on the cool name factor. <laughs> he was an argument player for me and Jared Smola, too. I, I was anti-Equinemius St. Brown. I just didn't, I didn't see anything special in him, but uh, there were certainly plenty of people that were behind him and propping him up. Pat, who's your top wide out here? So I went with Josh Doxson from, uh, let's see, Doxson, what year? 2016, 22nd overall pick. One pick ahead of Laquan Treadwell. So, uh, you know, because he was the earlier, those two could have, could I taken either guy really? But, um, you know, I, I guess Treadwell is still 
technically kicking around the league. So I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like Doxon was a pretty bright prospect, you know, decent size, 6'2", uh, a little over 200 pounds, 4'5 speed, 96th percentile burst score, 97th percentile catch radius. And then 25 touchdowns his last two seasons at SMU. It wasn't like he was a, a one-year wonder. Average 17 yards a catch his last year. You know, and then just three really fruitless seasons with Washington. You know, the first year was kind of a washout because he was hurt. Second year, 35 catches, 502 yards, six touchdowns. So maybe just enough to keep people optimistic. And then I think by year three, it was pretty obvious he was just not going to be a fantasy relevant guy. 44 catches, 532 yards, two touchdowns. And then after those first three years, one game with Minnesota in 2019 and he was gone. I just remember a lot of enthusiasm. He really got heartbeats of flutter on draft Twitter that year. (laughs) And man, just did not work out at all. Yeah, I remember really liking Josh Doxon that year. 2016, I think, was a killer for guys that fantasy people and draft analysts liked heading in. And when I say analysts, I don't mean the TV guys, but the draft analytics folks. 2016 was a killer year for wide receivers. We had Tajay Sharp and Kiaris Garrett in that draft. Both of those guys were market share winners. And then Sharp landed in round five. Garrett went undrafted. He was... He was a wide receiver that I remember us at Draft Sharks being like, oh, I'm waiting to see where Kiaris Garrett goes. And then he went on draft and we're like, well, what, what happened? Did they see what he did in college? But the biggest in that class, though, might have been Mike Thomas and not Michael Thomas, the Ohio State version, because he went in round two of that same draft. But Mike Thomas, the Southern Miss one, was also a market share winner. Didn't test great, but put good tape together. Was market share friendly in his final season there. Fantasy Twitter was angry that he didn't get invited to the scouting combine. And we all thought that the NFL was going to be proven wrong. NFL stuck him in the sixth round. I mean, he's still in the league right now, but I only know that because every once in a while he has this like wide receiver 33 week for the Bengals. And I'm like, oh yeah, Mike Thomas. There's another (laughs) one of those guys in the league. (laughs) He was exciting though that year. I remember a lot of people being on him. Yeah, going back to Butler for a second. So that that was kind of an interesting test of what people do once draft capital sorts out people's rankings. They go in with their, you know, here are my wide receiver rankings. Then the draft happens and they're the stick to your guns types who just like, I still think Butler's the best guy in this class. I'm, I'm dropping him to wide receiver two or wide receiver three. And, you know, then there are the people who, you know, ooh, so he didn't go till day three, huh? And, and, you know, drop him down accordingly. I like Butler too, but I, I dodged that bullet in every dynasty draft that year because there was always one stick to your guns type who, uh, you know, still was a big believer in Hakeem Butler and took him, you know, maybe end of the first round, early second rounds. So maybe that's uh, the case against sticking to your guns. Yeah, I mean, especially if wasn't he the third wide receiver that the Cardinals took in that draft? Wasn't it the same draft as Andy Isabella and Keyshawn Johnson? Yes. I think Johnson went after him, but yeah, oh, that's like, right. It was Isabella, then then Butler, and then Johnson. But it's funny because you're saying like there's always a stick to your guns guy. I use Dynasty League Football ADP for a lot of my ADP trend stuff. And I actually went to Ryan McDowell, who runs it, and I was like, hey, like in 2019, you guys do the May start or the May uh, rookie drafts before the NFL draft? It's like, no. I'm like, well, Hakeem Butler is in like 107. Like, is that right? He's like, yeah, no, there was lots of people that were still on him at that point. He's like, in all my like high, like all my big leagues with all the analysts, like somebody took him in the middle of the first round, end of the first round, and every one of them. <laughs> but they saw he went to day three, right? <laughs> I think those guys are still excited now that he moved to tight end because it's like a new life for him. Now he's going to replace <laughs> Dallas Goddard in Philly. Darren Waller all over again. <laughs> right. It's happened before. There's precedence here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing is I, I don't think that you should totally abandon everybody that you wind up being wrong about versus where they end up going in the NFL draft. But I'm definitely learning for myself. If the NFL says – we feel much differently about this guy than you did going in. I should at least be like, okay, maybe I need to adjust. Like just last year, Tyler Johnson from Minnesota 
I was excited about heading in. Then he landed in the fourth round with the Bucks. I was like, okay, maybe I guess I shouldn't take Tyler Johnson late round two or even early round three. So, you know, I don't, I don't think you have to totally abandon guys. And there are certainly going to be some times where we as fantasy evaluators get it right and the NFL gets it wrong. I mean, I had Ryan McDowell on the show a little while back and he said he actually did a study a few years ago where he, he looked at disagreements between like fantasy evaluations heading into the draft and where the NFL draft valued these guys. And a lot of times, if not more so, I think he said more often, dynasty owners were better at pinpointing where those guys belonged than NFL drafters were. I can see that. I feel like a lot of a lot of guys that get pumped up the draft board because of their draft capital end up failing. Like uh, Miko Hardman, like he he was he wasn't even on people's radar, and then he got drafted in the second round by the Chiefs, and he was a fringe first round pick after that. Like it was it was crazy how how much that landing spot and that draft capital boosted his stock, and, and it happens every year. Like there's tons of guys like that. It happens every year with the Chiefs at this point. Miko Hardman, <laughs> we get Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Yeah. Let's see who they make us draft too early this year. Exactly. <laughs> Another type that I remembered in looking through the wide receivers last night that I I think everybody would probably avoid going forward. We'll see how many of these guys pop up, but the quarterback turned wide receiver and I'm looking at Braxton Miller, Michael (laughs) Robinson and Mm -hmm. Eric Crouch in this, in this universe. They are all quarterbacks in college. They all tried to become wide receivers in the NFL. Didn't go very well. I mean, few guys who make that switch are going to be Julian Edelman. And it's important to remember that Julian Edelman, very late pick. You take a shot late, see what happens. Most of these guys probably are not even going to be Antoine Randall. He switched from quarterback to wide receiver for his final college season in Indiana. Still took him six years in the NFL to have a 50 catch season. He never topped 53, reached 600 receiving yards twice. So we'll see who the next wide receiver who used to be a quarterback is. I'm Matt Jones. I, oh, I was just say Although that the was NFL is excited about him. <laughs> I mean, Matt Jones had some Matt other stories, but yeah, and like people love that narrative too. Like, oh, he's a former quarterback; he knows how to think like a quarterback. He he knows, you know, how to. He's the quarterback's best friend. So, yeah, that's we do overrate those guys for sure. I think that guy and then the Florida running back have taught us that we should just stay away from Matt Joneses. <laughs> yes, <laughs> clearly yeah, the message. <laughs> Drew, any other wideouts on your board? Uh, the one, one guy that really came to mind for me was uh, Kelvin Harmon. I, I remember in 2019, he was, he was I believe, my wide receiver three coming into the draft. It was uh, Nikhil Harry, who obviously disappointed everyone, and then uh, A.J. Brown, and then Kelvin Harmon was my next guy up. And then he fell to round six, and, and it was it was all over for Kelvin. But I still took him in the third round of Dynasty rookie drafts when he was there and, mm-hmm. you know, sat on him for a couple of years. And I think I don't have him on any leagues in it have him in any leagues anymore but he was on my IR there because I think he I think he got hurt his first year and then obviously he didn't pan out and he was another guy that was like a Debbie darling that everyone was into and thought was gonna be the next big thing and I, I distinctly remember having a tweet that was like AJ Brown Kelvin Harmon I don't know which one I like better <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I remember Jared Kevin and I arguing like Hakeem Butler and Kelvin Harmon in our rookie rankings that year and it turns out the answer is neither one yeah. Pat any other wide receivers for you Yeah, I mean, Tavon Austin definitely jogged some memories, uh, 2013 being an early pick. But it was always like this question of what he could possibly be at that size in the NFL. Like, was he, you know, going to be this super successful slot receiver? Was he going to be like this jack of all trades, line him up in the backfield, motion him out? And, And that was kind of it. I mean, he just never really caught on as a receiver, I think, like about 500 receiving yards was his peak in 2015. I guess 2016, he did have like about 900 combined yards and nine touchdowns run catch, basically split 50-50, you know, but teams just couldn't figure out what to do with him, you know, kind of a glorified return man with first round draft capital in his year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's definitely a killer to remember. Of course, I think the main point, well, probably the main point in talking about all these guys is just for fun, because it's fun to relive some of the the past failures. But what we hope to get out of it, I think, is to avoid similar disappointments going forward, maybe trying to um, avoid the players who end up overrated versus expectations heading in. So Drew, who do you think might be some overrated prospects in this year's class heading into the NFL draft? Well, I didn't have him on my list, but after just hearing Pat talk about Tavon Austin, it really reminded me of what I'm thinking about 
Rondell Moore, who I really like. So that kind of makes me sad a little bit. <laughs> you know, we don't really know what he'll be. Maybe a souped-up slot receiver, maybe a glorified return man. I mean, Ooh, that's a scary t- floor. Tavon Austin is somebody that scared me in in talking about Rondell Moore too. It's like I I don't know. I I, I like what's there. But I don't know what he's going to be because we, we can't look to what's come before him in the NFL and say, yeah, that's what he's going to be and find something good at least. You know, you can find Tavon Austin and be like, no, I don't want him to be Tavon Austin. Can we find something better? So, yeah, that's certainly a scary one for Rondell Moore, I think. For sure. I'm, I'm still going to be in on Rondell Moore. Oh, me too. <laughs> and maybe I should be taking that cautionary tale. But I, I just – that freshman year Rondell Moore had at Purdue, you know, and as someone who – lives in the heart of Big Ten country, went to a Big Ten school. He made Purdue appointment Saturday afternoon viewing that year for the first time really since Drew Brees was playing quarterback for the Boilermakers. I mean, you just had to watch this guy play ball every Saturday. You know, and I'm, I'm sure people were saying the same thing about Tavon Austin, and it's scary as hell that Rondale measured five, seven and a half or whatever it was at his pro day. Here we were thinking he'd be at least 5'9", but no, you know, coming in way under that. But man, he was just electric against some pretty big time competition that year. So I'm still holding out hope, man. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm not uh, backing off the Rondale more, but just the way that you were describing Tavon Austin, I was like, oh, <laughs> this, is, this is sounding like something we could be saying about my guy Rondale in three years. He might be the one that I'm most interested in seeing, though, where he does land in the NFL draft because he could go. I mean, I I wouldn't be shocked with anywhere from like 25th to like round three. And I'm curious to see what the NFL thinks if they're like, I we haven't seen a guy like this, so I'm going to let somebody else take him. Or if somebody's like, this is a special athlete, I'm going to draft him and then I'll figure out what to do with him. Yeah, no, he's he's an interesting case. That's for sure. I, I remember, I don't know, but a month or two ago. We were talking about well, who who are we going to sacrifice to Baltimore? <laughs> Nobody wants a wide receiver to go to Baltimore. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Actually, if I had to pick one of the good wide receivers that I want to, or that I think would be fine there, I'm like, it would be Rondell Moore. Like, let Lamar Jackson just throw a little dump off to Rondell once in a while, and and he'll get his yak. He doesn't need to be, you know, like Lamar's not a great downfield passer by most people's uh, opinion. So I'm like, oh, I don't really want like a downfield receiver to go there. <laughs> Right. You can just get him like a little, like a, like a little slot receiver, like a like Willie Sneed, but a lot better. That, that probably wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> does Lamar Jackson know how to dump off though? I don't think he does. I don't think so, but I'm just hoping that you know, if I had to pick someone, I don't want anyone to go there. But if I had to pick someone that was good, it would be Rondell. Ideally, it's like somebody like uh, you know somebody I don't like that goes there. And then yeah. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, Kadarius Tony. How about I know That's he popped one up. I was thinking of. he popped up on Pat's overrated list. How about we? We go ahead and mock Kadarius Tony to Baltimore, and everybody's happy. I'm yes. in. <laughs> Devontae Smith, I think, is somebody that both of you guys are wary of heading into the draft. So, Pat, what are you worried about with Devontae Smith heading into the NFL draft? The BMI, the the six one one seventy. I mean, maybe the guy's just a unicorn. Like I, I think he's terrific college player, but I mean, it shades of Peter Warwick from Florida State there. And the funny thing is, when I've seen the comps of guys at that BMI, like there's just no track record of anyone having any NFL success whatsoever. But really, the sample size is just so small of guys who even fit that species of player. You know, it's just a a very (laughs) there's so few guys to have played big time college football with that sort of a BMI. So, I mean, maybe he's already kind of a unicorn that he's excelling with that body build, the Slim Reaper. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so who's to say that it can't happen again? I'm not ruling him out. You know, Mm -hmm. I think he's a pretty damn good football player. I just don't know if you're getting the right pot odds, to use a poker term, at this point, if you have to take him at at 105 or 106 in a 1QB draft or, or 108, 109 in a 2QB rookie dynasty draft like I I don't think you're getting the right odds like I wouldn't rule out being interested in him if he were going a bit later than he's going in these rookie drafts Mm -hmm. Drew same kind of concern for you yeah I mean beyond just his BMI like he also didn't break out till his third year till he was 20.8 years old which is which is a pretty big red flag on its own 
And the way that we were getting away with this kind of thing last year with, uh, you know, Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy was saying, well, they got four first round picks. So can't expect these guys to break out because there's too many of them. But then, you know, Henry Ruggs shouldn't have been a first round pick. So we shouldn't keep saying that they had four first round picks when Henry Ruggs clearly doesn't belong in the first round after his rookie year. We now know that he shouldn't have been a first round pick. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Judy was fine, but he's also not a superstar. I, I don't think there are many out there saying Jerry Judy is a future superstar like they were in his draft year. So the, these guys played exactly to what their prospect profile suggested. And now with DeMonta Smith and Jalen Waddle, we're, you know, everybody's saying the same things. We well, hey, these are four first round picks. We need to make an exception. I'm like, I don't know, like we didn't, we shouldn't have made an exception last year. Why should we make one this year? And, uh, you know, with Devonta, it's, you know, his BMI, like, I totally like what, what Pat was saying. You know, we, we have no samples in this size range and that's probably for a reason because most players don't play very well at that size range in football. It's physical sport. Mm-hmm. But then when you expand it and you go up a little bit and you keep going up and up, 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 you get like a really long ways away from Devonta Smith's BMI and we still don't see any successful players. And we do see ones that are drafted in the first round of the NFL draft at like a 25 BMI or a 24 BMI and, I don't even know what Devonta Smith is because we never actually got his real measurements because he <laughs> declined to weigh in three separate times. And then he's like, no, seriously, I'm 170, guys. Trust me. I'm like, just up on the scale and show us 170. And I'm like, what are you, 160, 155? What are we talking? So I don't yeah. know. Like, Devonta Smith is someone that I'm – it's funny. Last year, Devonta Smith was supposed to come out, we were told. I was really excited. I'm like, you can tell me I get to draft the best player in Alabama in the middle of the second round? Like, that's great. I'm in. I don't care what his BMI is at that point. But now when people are talking like, you know, Devonta Smith or Jamar Chase, who's maybe the best wide receiver prospect we've seen since like Calvin Johnson, like this isn't a contest. Like this is not comparable at all. They're, they're not the same level of prospect. So I agree with you, Pat. If if he was a little cheaper, I'd be interested. But at his price point, he's, he's way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> Who are the wide receivers that you guys are comfortably drafting ahead of Devontae Smith? Obviously, without knowing NFL landing spot, but, you know, just assuming all that being equal at this point. Uh, for me, I have, like, Rashad Bateman ahead of him. Jamar Chase, obviously. Uh, Rashad mm-hmm. Bateman would be ahead of him. Uh, I, I think that, you know, somebody like Elijah Moore or Rondell Moore are, like, right there with Devonta Smith. I don't, I don't have a strong preference for one over the other at this point. Terrace Marshall out of LSU is somebody that doesn't really score very well in my the way that I do my process, but he's someone that I'm very interested in based on context because unlike the Alabama situation where we have four first-round picks that some of them may not even be good, <laughs> we already know that Justin Jefferson is amazing. <laughs> we already know that, so it would have been absurd for Terrace Marshall to to take any anything away from him, and I'm pretty sure that Jamar Chase is amazing as well because well, he profiles amazing, and he was better than Justin Jefferson when they played together at a year younger with a year less experience. Mm-hmm. So for Terrace Marshall to actually eat in that offense, it would have been pretty tough. And he did break out in that offense with those two guys, which, you know, somebody like Henry Ruggs never did break out, and mm-hmm. he never played with that caliber of player. Mm-hmm. So Terrace Marshall's right there. I think he's a lot higher ceiling than Devonta Smith, to be perfectly honest. And that's probably about it. Pat, any other names for you? Basically, a lot of the, the same guys Drew has. Chase, Waddle, Bateman. Marshall, man, I'm such a Rondale Moore fan that it would be really tough if it came down to those two for me. Uh, I don't think it will, luckily, Mm -hmm. in in the spots where I happen to be drafting in my dynasty leagues. So, I mean, I've still got him like fifth or sixth. I just don't think that that's, I don't know. I I think most people have got him like top three, top four. Mm -hmm. Drew, I got to ask you about Kenneth Gainwell, who you gave me on your list of overrated players. What do you dislike about Kenneth Gainwell? Or is it just that other people like him too much. It's just that other people like him too much. I I looked up his ADP yesterday when I was uh, looking at this stuff and he was going at I think he was late first round and I was like, "Whoa, that's that's crazy. Like this guy's only 201 pounds and he hasn't played in a year and I'm not even sure that he's actually going to be drafted in round 3 of the NFL draft. Like he he could be one of those guys that falls to day day 3 that we we're just talking about how the NFL tells us who's Tells us if we're right or not. So he like where he's at right now just feels wrong. It may change once he gets drafted, and and then uh, you know we feel a little bit better about him being a round three pick or maybe even round two if things really go well. But he he seems like a guy to me that could easily fall to to day three on the NFL draft where he's valued right now. That's really terrifying. Yeah, I just looked up. He's at one eleven in single QB leagues. 
So that, that's just too too rich for me right now. He's my Kenneth Dixon right now. He's faster than Kenneth Dixon was, but brings a, a similarly impressive receiving profile. I think he was at a school where he was playing. He was getting touches ahead of Antonio Gibson and Patrick Taylor. So I'm very interested to see where Kenneth Gainwell does get drafted. Cause like you said, if he lands late in round two, then it's like, Oh, okay. Kenneth Gainwell. If he lands in round five, it's like, Oh man, I remember Kenneth Gainwell. So exactly. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens with him. I'll certainly be watching closely. Drew Ossinchuk is at DF bean counter on Twitter. He is the host of the Bulletproof fantasy football podcast. Drew, please tell people where they can find your work. Pretty much everything's on Twitter now, so at DFB Encounter. And then I do uh, rankings and such on Patreon, patreon.com backslash uh, Bulletproof FF. And then, you know, the podcast you just mentioned. And then we've got a YouTube channel as well, uh, Bulletproof FF YouTube channel. Nice. Check that stuff out. Drew, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Pat Fitzmaurice is at Fitz underscore FF on Twitter. He hosts the Fitz on Fantasy podcast. Pat, tell us where to look for your content. Rankings are always at thefootballgirl.com, and uh, I will have rankings and articles and other goodies at Football Guys this year. And I have a weekly podcast, Fits on Fantasy. So hope people check that out. Football Girl, Football Guys. Only thing missing is non binary football, I think, at this point. <laughs> pan gender, man. I'm the pan gender football guy. <laughs> right. I got fantasy <laughs> advice for everybody. Pat, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Matt. That is going to do it for this episode of the Draft Sharks podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now or the DS YouTube channel to check out all the Dynasty Prospect scouting reports we've pumped out for this year's draft class. Plenty more to come in these final weeks leading up to the NFL draft. Become a DS Insider to get access to our Dynasty rankings, rookie rankings, and redraft rankings, plus all the tools you need to dominate your drafts. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. I am at ShoutDS. For Drew Osinchuk, Pat Fitzmaurice, and the entire Draft Sharks crew. I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us. <laughs>